Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for a week off uh, last week. It's nice to sit in somebody else's congregation and let somebody else preach. It's just nice. Um, I got to uh, be in Scotts Hill Baptist Church uh, last Sunday morning in uh, Hampstead, North Carolina, and uh, they got a good little preacher over there. I really enjoyed that. I uh, took some notes. Savs, you did a great job. Where was Savs at? I got to, uh, great job, man. Praise the Lord for you. Uh, I thought you just did an excellent job last week, my friend. Thanks for filling the pulpit. So we're starting on a brand new series, and I'm really excited about this because I just feel like the Lord wants to just realign our lives to some things. And what I'm finding as a pastor, I went through the stretch for a long time where I just felt like the Lord was saying uh, that, that, you know, that Jesus was going to be pulled out of the marketplace, that he'd be removed from our, our public discussion, our public forum, and our, our politics, and our school system, all those things. And definitely for a period of time, I absolutely saw that at every turn. Uh, you, you'd never hear the things of Jesus. But now, here's what I'm discovering. Uh, Jesus is returning to the public forum, uh, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, we're, we're, we're beginning to use his name and, and stand, and, and the things that we would say Jesus would stand for, but it's not the things that Scripture says that Jesus would stand for. And if we're not careful, if we don't have ears to hear, if we're not in tune with what Scripture says, then we're going to move into uh, deception. We, ha- we just have to be careful. And I would challenge us. All of us are on some spectrum of deception. I'm, there are things I'm being deceived on in my life. There are things you're being deceived on. But it's our responsibility as followers of Christ to be in tune with the Bible and the Holy Spirit and allow him to be pointing out those deceptions wherever they come. And so one of the things I've just, re- I've just recommitted myself to, I've just gone back to the Gospels. And I'm just reading the Gospels. Because the Gospels tell you what Jesus said. And they tell you what Jesus did and what he didn't do. And they show you how he loved people. And he showed, it shows us who he went after. And how he was long-suffering with folks. And for me, it's just been a great kind of realignment and reorientation to just read a passage out of the gospel and just ask myself, what does this tell me about who Jesus is and what he did? And so as we're talking for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about uh, learning to live according to the ways of Jesus in our relationships. Because what I have found is that for many of us, our relationships are what kind of shipwrecks us in our life. That brokenness in our relationships are, are what brings anxiety to us. It's what keeps us up at night. It's what keeps us from moving forward into everything that God has for us. It's, it's what breaks up families. It's what breaks up friendships. It's what, unfortunately, can split churches if we're not careful. That broken relationships can be an incredible anchor in our life that keeps us from moving forward into what God has for us. So as followers of Christ, it's important for us to understand how did Jesus interact in the relationships in his life. Because if you do what Jesus did, you can't go wrong. Right? I mean, if we align our lives to the way Jesus aligned his life when it comes to relationships, then we cannot fail. One of the things that we have been, it's been kind of a constant theme for us on, on our Wednesday night teaching and also from the pulpit is this idea that God calls us as followers of Christ to live a life of contrast. You probably heard me say that. That there should be things in our life that are different than the way people of the world live. And people who don't know Jesus, that we don't say the same things, we don't spend our money the same way, we don't 
raise our children the same way. We live for a different kingdom. We serve a different king. And so there should be a contrast. And when our lives are contrasted with that of the world, it creates this attraction to the gospel that's almost undeniable. When people see there's a different way to live and they see peace in your life and joy in your life, then it attracts them to Jesus. And I believe that relationships is one of the primary ways that our lives can be attractional to people who don't know the Lord. Because there's not enough self-help books out there to fix a lot of the relational problems we're dealing with right now. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 25. That's where we're going to start today. And uh, from time to time, I challenge you to memorize Scripture. Uh, I just believe that hiding God's Word in your heart can have a profound uh, effect on your walk. It's like uh, kind of sticking dynamite into your life and you wait for the Holy Spirit to light the fuse. And it just blows up and it changes things. But I just want to challenge you over the next couple of weeks as we study this passage, would you work on memorizing these two verses? Psalm chapter 25, verse 4 and 5. I ran across this verse uh, the first time uh, between my sophomore and junior year of college. I was at a training retreat with a friend. And she was telling me about what the Lord was doing in her life. And she spoke this verse. She said, this is what the Lord is speaking to me right now. This is the season I'm in. And, and that conversation spurred this verse into my life, not only for that summer, but moving forward. It just says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your past. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For your God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And I love that, that humility that's being displayed there. It's just saying, show me your ways. I, I, I know my ways. I, I don't want to follow my ways anymore. Show me your ways. Teach me your past. Guide me in your truth, not my truth. Man, I'm sorry, if I hear that one more time from someone, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sharing my truth. I, I'm not concerned about your truth. I'm concerned about the truth. Guide me in the truth and lead me. For you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. So that's going to be the theme verse that kind of teaches us all through this next couple of weeks on the way of Jesus in our relationships. So I want us to talk about today is the way of Jesus when it comes to those who betray us. How do we gracefully love those who betray us? And betrayal is such an interesting thing. It's one of those things that's not like other things that happen in our relationships Sometimes in our relationship, there's anger and we can kind of get over it. Sometimes there's just misunderstanding or frustration and we can move past that. But betrayal is one of those things that just cuts right to our heart, right? When someone who we're intimately connected with, and, and that's the trick with betrayal, not just anyone can betray you. It takes a level of intimate connection with someone. And the deeper the connection, the greater the chance for betrayal, right? But when someone betrays us, that wound is just open and it's bleeding and it's throbbing. And what is our response nine times out of ten to the one who has betrayed us? It is revenge. It is anger. It's pride. It's pushing back. It's distance. It's all of those things. But as believers in Christ, there is a different way. And I know that because Jesus showed us a different way. He showed us a different way. Because you and I are familiar 
with the greatest betrayal in history. It's interesting to me. Even people who don't know Scripture, even people who never darkened the door of a church, know the greatest betrayal in all of history. And what is that? Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Everyone knows if you call someone a Judas, they know exactly what you're talking about in our culture. Because we understand the level of betrayal that was there. A completely perfect man, Jesus, who never one time sinned against anyone, including Judas himself, never wronged Judas, never said a crossword to Judas, never one time failed Judas, never was betrayed by this man for 30 pieces of silver. But I would suggest it was a lot more than just the silver. There's, there's things going on in his heart that came to the surface and brought all that about. And I think that as we look at how Jesus interacted with his Judas, then it can challenge us how we are called to interact with our Judases, right? So let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. Let's flip to the right in your Bible if you're still in Psalm. John chapter 6. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come on the scene. People are listening to him teach. They've seen him do miracles. He has uh, gathered all these crowds around him now. People haven't seen anything like this in hundreds of years. And they're flocking to Jesus to hear him teach and to see him work miracles. And Jesus is so different than most of us, including me. Uh, When the crowds got bigger, Jesus actually preached it harder. Like instead of softening things so that everybody would keep going, Jesus started saying things that were harder and harder. And so he would say things like this. He would say, if you don't uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place with me. Which to a Jew was like, what? What, what, are you, what are you talking about? And what we know on this side of things, we know he's talking about this deep relational interaction with him. We know he's talking, he's alluding towards the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, we know those things, but they didn't know those things. But he's preaching these things even harder and harder. And you know, by the end of this sermon, in John chapter 6, everybody has bailed on Jesus. Everybody. I mean, thousands of people are like, I'm not following this guy anymore. Except for a handful of folks. Those men that he had called to be the disciples. And just a few other folks that stuck with him through thick and thin. They're all that's left. And I love what Jesus does. Instead of saying, man, thank you so much for sticking with me. I can't believe all these people bailed. Instead of doing that, look at what Jesus does. John chapter 6, verse 68. Jesus says, I mean before this, I'm sorry. Jesus says, uh, by the way, do y'all want to leave too? Like it's not going to get easier. Like everybody's gone. If you'd like to leave too, this is your shot. And look at what Peter says. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter didn't say, man, I I understand what you were saying. I think Peter was as confused as everybody else. I think he didn't understand Jesus' teaching fully and wouldn't for some time. I think it was a hard word. It was a hard challenge. It it was hard for him. But he said, listen, I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. You you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Nobody speaks like you. Nobody does the things you do. No one's ever encountered me like you've encountered me. No one's ever changed my life like you've changed my life. Where am I going to go? And look at what Jesus says in response. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you? The 12. Yet one of you is a devil. Man, that's an interesting way to end a conversation, isn't it? 
Man, thanks for hanging. I appreciate it. You're the 12. You're the ones I've chosen. And one of you is a devil. And then John gives us this great commentary. And in your notes, it just says verse, through verse 70. So I'm sorry about that. But 71 is the payoff. Look at this. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Why does John, through the Holy Spirit, make sure that that little thing is added at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? He wants us to understand one thing. Jesus knew what was coming. I think sometimes we read the story of the crucifixion, everything we just came through at Easter, and we think that Judas betrays Jesus, and Jesus finds out after the, the Last Supper when Judas rolls up with the mob. That's not what happened. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll find out Jesus knew what was coming with the cross, and he headed in that direction. He knew God's plan. He didn't just know that, but he knew from the beginning of his ministry that Judas was going to betray him. So you want to talk about our betrayal, like the people who have betrayed us. Nine times out of ten, we don't find out someone's going to betray us until it happens, right? I mean, if we understand someone is going to betray us, we usually take action to prevent that from happening. But Jesus knew from the beginning of a three-year ministry, seven days a week, 24 hours a day with a man, he knew he would betray him, not just talk about him or not just steal money. He knew he was going to betray him to death. Now let's look at how Jesus interacted with Judas. You with me? So John chapter 12, flip over to the right, just a couple pages. You know, there's not a ton of stories where Jesus interacts with Judas, but I want you to see the ones he does because I think they can be very informative to us. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You remember that story? The very chapter before this, Mary and Martha call for Jesus because Lazarus is sick. Jesus does not come when they want him to come. He allows Lazarus to die. He comes. They say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died, right? Our brother would not have died. Jesus uses that opportunity to prove that he is indeed the Son of God and has authority even over death. He brings Lazarus back from the dead. Now they're sitting in Lazarus' living room. They're enjoying fellowship together. And I guarantee there's this blessing of relationship that's come after raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. They probably feel like that's the least we can do is feed you and your boys just to say thank you. Martha served, shocker, Martha's always serving, right? While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we don't understand the context of this in our culture because most of us have some kind of cologne or perfume or something, and you take the cap off and you spray, and maybe you take the little dauber and you put it on your wrist or your neck or whatever. But in this day, what they would do with this, this very fine perfume is it would be in a completely sealed bottle. 
and it was very valuable and it was very extravagant. And a lot of times people would collect this basically as a savings account. They would go and they would buy this perfume and then they would keep it in their home and it would gain and gain in value. And sometimes women would use this to support themselves once they were married or once they were out from under their father's household. I mean, this was a big deal. And later we're going to find out this was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. And the problem with this was, it's not like your cologne and your perfume where you could take the cap off, spray it, and then put it back on. When you opened this, when you broke the vessel, it could not be capped again. And it had to be used right then, or it lost its value. So you have to understand what she's doing. She is so grateful. It's not just going to be a meal at her house. She goes and gets probably the most valuable thing she owns. And she breaks it. She opens up her savings account. She takes a year of wages. How about you? You got a year of your wages laying around? Me, not either. She breaks it open and she pours it on his feet. His feet. And then wipes his feet with her hair to worship Jesus and to show gratitude to Jesus. Extravagant, right? An extravagant act. And then look at this. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth at least a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. I love John is always giving you commentary about what's going on in the background. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag... He used to help himself to what was put in it. So John helps us understand what's going on. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. We could sell that and put that in the community fund, which he was in charge of. And from time to time, he was dipping out of the fund. So this was not about the poor, right? It wasn't about the poor. It had nothing to do with correcting this woman who was worshiping Jesus. This was about the depth of the betrayal already in his heart. He was already a thief. He was already someone who was trying to mask his intentions from Jesus. He was already that person. And I want you to understand this. I believe Jesus knew. I believe Jesus knew. He knew in that moment what's happening. So verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone to worship me how she feels led. Leave her alone to be extravagant with me how she feels led. Leave her alone to lay a gift at my feet however she feels led. You'll always have opportunity, but you won't always have me with you. Leave her alone. Isn't it interesting that this story makes the historical canon of everything about Jesus' life that we could have learned and the Holy Spirit could have preserved for us. This is one of the things it records, not just Mary's extravagant heart, but it records Judas's wicked, thieving heart. Isn't that, isn't that incredible how the Holy Spirit does that for us? Now look, just a couple days later, chapter 13 of John, the night before the crucifixion, we just studied it a couple weeks ago leading into Easter. And look at what takes place. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come 
for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You've got to get verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Iscariot, to betray Jesus. It's already been set in motion. You with me? And I absolutely believe Jesus knew it. We'll find out because later he reveals that he knew it. So everything that's about to happen happens in the context of Jesus being fully aware that Judas has already been prompted to betray him to death literally in a matter of minutes to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus knew that his father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And I encourage you to underline verse 3 because this is really key and we're going to talk about why it's key later. This is really key to Jesus' ability to graciously serve Judas in light of all this. He knew the Father put all things under his power, that he was coming from God and was returning to God. Verse 4, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He basically strips down to his boxer shorts to serve these people. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you have to understand, most of you know this, but if you're not familiar, culturally, Israel was a very dry and dusty place, and when you walked along the roads, your feet got filthy because most people wore sandals, and who did not wear sandals, they were barefoot. So everywhere you went, your feet were just filthy. So custom was to show hospitality whenever you came into anyone's home the person of lowest stature in the room, when you entered that room, it was their responsibility to wash everyone's feet in that room when they came in. Now, usually that was reserved for like a servant or whatever else it was. But you notice they've started dinner, Jesus is there, and nobody has washed anybody's feet yet. You know why? Because they couldn't figure out among themselves who was the lowest person in the room and who should have been washing feet. We don't really know in the scheme of things who should have been doing it, but we know who should not have been doing it. We know the one person who shouldn't have been washing anybody's feet, and that was Jesus. But when they would not do what needed to be done, Jesus disrobed. He takes a towel, a wash basin, and he washes his disciples' feet, each one of them. And guess who was sitting there too? Judas. You know, Jesus did some miraculous things in his ministry. He raised people from the dead. He gave sight to blind people. He allowed deaf people to hear. I think this was his greatest miracle apart from the cross. He washed Jesus. He washed Judas' feet. Only the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and being humbly in tune with God would let you wash the feet of a man who was going to betray you in a matter of minutes. I think this is one of his greatest miracles. And look what happens. Down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to that place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Talk about tension in the room. I mean, it's already gotten tense when everybody else figured out that Jesus was going to serve them because they wouldn't serve each other. It's gotten much more heightened now when he looks at the 12 and says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which if you read the Gospel of John in context, you'll figure out he's talking about himself. That was his little way to refer to himself. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him, to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. It was night. Light and dark, night and day are big themes in the Gospel of John. You can trace that out. Uh, Wicked and evil things happen at night in the Gospel of John. So as soon as uh, Judas leaves the room, it is night. So for John, it's this idea of evil beginning to rear its head. Now I want you to skip over one, a couple chapters to your right, John 18. And we'll read what we already know. John 18, beginning in verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now on the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. And now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And you know the rest of the story. You know of Jesus' arrest, you know of his trial before the Sanhedrin and then in front of Pilate, you know him being beaten 39 times then you know of him being stripped and then made to carry his cross where he was crucified and died an incredibly agonizing death the worst part of which was for your sin and mine you know the rest what stuns me 
about Jesus' interaction with his betrayer is his unbelievable gracious servanthood of Judas, even in light of knowing that he would betray him from the very beginning. We've just read three stories of his gracious servanthood to Judas. But how many more do we not know about? How many day in and day out did Judas challenge Jesus' ministry and things like that and be a blow on his side? And Jesus loved him each and every single time. And I want to give you hope because there's people who have betrayed you. There are children who you have raised in your home and you have poured your life into. That you have given everything under the sun and you've tried to raise them in a godly way and you haven't been a perfect parent, but, but you've worked hard to be a parent who seeks to honor the Lord and seeks to, to raise that child in godliness and they have turned their back on you and they have broken off relationship with you and now there are things like grandchildren coming along and there are holidays that you're missing and there's interactions that you just can't have because that betrayal has happened and, and you're at your wit's end. You're asking yourself, how do I love someone like that? Some of you may have, uh, in your workplace, been passed over for a promotion because someone who just decided they didn't want to advance you decided to, to move somebody else along. Some of you may have founded a business with somebody and because of their lack of integrity, their lack of concern for you and your family, they, they took money or they made deals that have now put you in jeopardy. They, they betrayed you. They betrayed your trust. They betrayed your future. They betrayed your hope. Some of you uh, women have had a man, that's, uh, a man that's walked out of your life and said, listen, I don't, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I, I, love, I love her more than I love you. In fact, I'm, I never love you. There's never been a, a day I've ever loved you. And you know, you know what that betrayal has done to you. You know what it's done to your children. You know what it's doing to your life day in and day out. And sometimes it feels like I will never get past it. I will never get over it. It can never be healed. Listen to me. Listen to me. The way of Jesus can set you free. It can set you free. And this morning could be part of that process for you. So how can you and I gracefully serve those who have betrayed us? Number one. Pray for them. Pray over them. Bring them before Jesus every time they come to your mind. What, how would your mental state change if every time the bad thoughts came from that person, you instead turned them over to Jesus and laid them at his feet? Pray over them. Jesus prayed over Judas. How do you know that? Because one of the Gospels says that the night before he called the twelve, the night before he chose them, he prayed all night long. It says he prayed all night long before he picked the 12 people who were going to be his disciples, the apostles, including Judas. This is my own kind of backdoor theory. I think that a lot of that time spent talking to the Father was not figuring out the other 11 names. It was figuring out the one name. It was figuring out how in God's plan it comes together for him to choose Judas and then, understanding that it was God's plan, asking the Lord, you're going to have to intervene on this one. If you're going to uh, ask me to pour into the life of the one who's going to betray me, you're going to have to invest in me on in that. Jesus prayed all night long before he called his disciples, including Judas. Luke chapter 5, verse 16 said, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We don't know what he prayed about. But I promise you, over the course of three years of ministry, I promise you, he was praying over Judas more than once. I promise he was. In the garden, the night 
of Jesus' betrayal, literally minutes before he leads the mob to arrest him. What was Jesus doing? He's wrestling in the garden about accepting the Lord's will and what was coming on the cross. And I think at least part of that was knowing he's about to look the guy in the face who would betray him unto death. And we know what happened, right? When Judas shows up, Jesus didn't call down a thunderbolt, which is what I would have done, baby. I just said, Instead, when Peter pulls out his sword and tries to kill one of the servants, Jesus said, no, it's not going down like that. This is what the Lord wants. But he still looked Judas in the eye and said, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He looks him eye to eye. I believe Jesus prayed over Judas all the time. And I want to say, you're just going to have to pray over your kids. You're going to have to pray over your husband. You're going to have to pray over your coworker. You're going to have to pray over your church member. You're going you're gonna to have to pray over the people who have betrayed you. Well, Pastor Matt, I've been praying for years. Nothing's changed in them. Maybe it's not about them changing. Maybe it's about you changing. If the greatest thing Jesus does in our heart through prayer is changes our heart, that is enough. But wouldn't it be worth it to see the man or woman who betrayed you come to you and see that God is working in their life? And it may take 15 years. It may take 25 years. It would be worth it. Because it's not about me being justified or being right. It's about God working in their life like he's working in yours. That's the heart. That's what we want. We want to see them changed. Not just us apologize to. Not just us apologize to. Number two, how do we gracefully serve our betrayers? Never back down from the truth. I think that we have been taught that in order to keep the peace as believers, that we shouldn't speak the truth. We shouldn't lay things out. That grace tells us that we should just sweep things under the rug. I just don't think so. When Jesus was with his disciples, he said, I've chosen you and want to use a devil. That was the truth. When Mary pours out her perfume on Jesus' feet and Judas criticizes it, Jesus says, leave her alone. Jesus washed Judas' feet on the night before the crucifixion and then he says, one of you will betray me. And then he tells John, he's the one. Then he looks at Judas and he says, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Making perfectly sure that Judas knew, ex- uh, G- Judas knew exactly what was going on. Jesus knew. He didn't back down from the truth. You have to speak the truth in love. You have to. You have to. But you can still gracefully serve the person who has betrayed you. Listen to me. If your grandfather molested you, You can graciously serve that person and not deny that it happened. You don't have to live in this cone of silence in your family that nothing happened. Listen to me. You have to speak the truth in love. And graciously serving your grandfather does not mean you have to let him in your house so that he has access to your children. That's not what grace is. Grace is loving and serving someone, but still drawing healthy boundaries around the truth. If your husband is abusive to you, listen. Grace doesn't say, I'm going to stay in my household and let him keep being abusive to me physically. 
That's not what grace says. We speak the truth in love. We go and we get help. We bring it into the light. We get people around us that can help us so that people like the church and your friends and maybe even the authorities can come and help you straighten it out. Grace doesn't mean you continue to allow yourself being abused. You can graciously serve your abusive husband without being in his presence. You absolutely can. But we are called to graciously serve our betrayers. Just like Jesus did. But we don't ever back down from the truth. Don't do it. Don't do it. Number three, if we're going to graciously serve our betrayers, we have to stay oriented to the Father and his plans. We have to stay oriented to what God is doing and to the heart of God. Remember what I told you to er underline earlier in John chapter 13? It says, I mean, John tells us Jesus knew who he was. He knew the power he had. He knew where he came from and where he was going. Jesus was constantly, purposely reoriented to God at all times. He knew God's plan. He knew God's heart. And that was the only way he could navigate day in and day out loving a man who was going to betray him. Jesus stayed in tune with God. And I want to say something to you. It's the only way you'll navigate it either. Only when you're in tune with the heart and the plan of God every single day will you be able to navigate those who betray you. If not, you're going to speak to them and act out of them, towards them, out of your flesh. And that's only going to provide more problems for you. More problems. We need the grace of Jesus to overwhelm us. Number four, how do we gracefully serve our betrayers? Don't let their response determine your response. Don't ever let a sinful man or woman's response determine your response. Here's what you do. If you wait for them to ask forgiveness before you forgive them, then you give them incredible power over you and over your life. You think that's power over them? Oh, no, no, it's not. Because anyone who's not going to come to you and ask for forgiveness, what they did, especially something heinous like abuse, anyone who's not going to come to you and ask for forgiveness, they're not thinking of you anyway. They're thinking of themselves. They're not holding you in prison. They're in prison to their sin, but they're not holding, they're, they're not thinking of you, but you're thinking of them. I want to say something to you. One of the best way to graciously serve your Judas is to forgive them. And again, you don't have to go into their presence to do that. One of my family members decided he was going to molest another family member in my family. And when I found out, my first instinct was, I'm going to drive down there, I'm going to kill him. I'll just be honest with you, that, that was my first instinct. Fortunately, we don't live in the same town. Because I, I got to cool off, I got to rethink that, I, I, got, to, I got to just take a breather. But you know, before that week was over, I wrote a four-page letter. And I said everything that was in my heart. And I ended it with, I forgive you. And that there's no way, there's no way that you had dealt with everything in your heart in a week. Nope, I hadn't. I hadn't. I still deal with a lot of that garbage. Right now, today, I still deal with a lot of that garbage. But I made a choice. At the beginning, I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to forgive you again and again and again. Not because you deserve it, but because I want to graciously serve those who have betrayed me. 
And I want to challenge you. If you want to be free of that person, it starts with forgiveness. Please go to counseling. Please get help. Please get distance. Please do those things. But it has to start with forgiveness. And only Jesus can do that for you. So number four. How do we gracefully serve those who have betrayed us? I'm sorry, number five. We pray for revelation to see them as Christ sees them. Revelation is not earned knowledge. You're never going to open a book and gain the knowledge that you need to compare to revelation. Revelation is when God pulls back the cloak and he shows you what you couldn't see before. It's a spiritual act. Only Jesus can do that. You need Jesus to help you see your betrayer like he sees them. And if you want to know how Jesus sees your betrayer, it's the same way he saw Judas. He graciously served him again and again and again. And the last thing is this. We need to pray for revelation to see your own betrayal. Because here's where things will turn. I promise you, here's where they'll turn. When Jesus starts to allow you to see them like he sees them, and when he starts to allow you to see how you have betrayed him, it will change your heart. Because when Jesus helps us to see that it wasn't just Judas's betrayal that put Jesus on the cross, it was yours. It was your sin, your rebellion, your brokenness, your pride, your anger, your disobedience, your running away from God. It was your sin too. It was your betrayal too. It was our betrayal. It was my betrayal. It was our betrayal. And Jesus poured out his grace on us. He poured out his love on us. He sprinkled his blood on our heart and he forgave us. And he forgives us again and again and again. We act like it was one betrayal in the past. No, we sin against him all the time. All the time we choose our own way. And he forgives us again and again and again. We'll never forgive our betrayers until we understand how we have betrayed Jesus. The praise team is going to come. And as they come, this is a chance for us to respond to what we've heard and 